This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are you guys ready to study the Word this morning? We'll turn to Psalm 139. Today we are going to be concluding our summer Psalms teaching series. This summer, for those of you who haven't been around, or if you're new this morning, we want you to know that we have been studying select psalms throughout the course of the summer, and we've been looking at different pictures of the faith and different pictures of life that the psalmist teaches us and shows us in these very transparent and um, very introspective words that they are writing. And the psalmist, especially David, because David wrote a large portion of the psalms, the psalmist, what they're doing in these chapters of Scripture, it's almost as if we are getting to open up their prayer journals. It's almost like we're getting to open up their spiritual diaries. And we're getting to see what their thoughts and their longings and, and, and their need was before God and how they articulated those things to God and how God responded and how God acted. And these are very applicable for you and for me because you cannot read the Psalms for very long before you start recognizing, wow, I totally identify with that. Whoa, I'm not the only one who's ever thought that. I'm not the only one who's ever asked that question. And so I, I believe they've been very applicable for us as we've gone through this study over the course of the summer. Today we're going to be in Psalm 139, and we're going to see a picture of dignity. The, the words of the day are dignity, worth, value, your identity. If I were to ask you the question today, who are you? Who are you? Well, you might say, well, I'm my mom and my dad's daughter, or I'm my parents' son. You may start talking about your last name, or possibly your ethnic heritage, the country that you are from. Uh, some people would even say a part of their identity is the color of their skin. Um, you may say, think about your gifts and your passions and your abilities, all these things that make you who you are. Uh, in society today, we see identity coming from a multitude of places. And, and today, if you were to look at 21st century American society, identity is the buzzword everywhere. If you look at the political debates that we are having, it is predicated upon making a way for people to express their identity through a multitude of ways. Um, you look at relationships. There are so many who can, will chase after the wife, chase after the husband in order to be so-called complete. And if not careful, we take a good gift of God that's been given to us for human enjoyment and for procreation and for glorifying God. And we make that other person ultimate because we literally find our identity in that person. And so when that boyfriend breaks up with us, we feel like we have lost literally everything in our lives because they had become our everything. They had become the very foundation of our identity. When you look at all of the questions surrounding sexuality today, when you look at the gay rights movement, when you look at the transgender movement, and you look at all of these very complicated, complex issues, at the very heart of it and the root of it is a question of identity. Who am I? I want to express myself through this avenue. 
Now, here's the challenge for you and for me, whether we are followers of Jesus today or whether we're simply exploring the things of the faith. There are some foundations for us to ask today, some foundations for us to know today before we ever even dive into this conversation of who we are and how the scriptures define who we are. And one of these is in your notes this morning. If you'll pull those out and follow along with me as I make my way through Psalm 139. The first foundation that I want us to see this morning is that in order to grow in a healthy self-esteem, you must grow in a proper God-esteem. Self-esteem, identity, worth, human expression is the buzzword of the day. And you need to hear from me as a pastor and a proclaimer of the Word of God that self-esteem in and of itself is not innately wrong. The problem, though, is when we are pursuing self-esteem and identity detached from our Creator, what we are doing is we are creating an esteem that is very individualistic and actually at its very core is a worship of the self because it's all about me. It's all about self. It's detached from God. But for anyone, but especially for Christians, we must find our worth and our esteem and our value in what God says about us, who God says we are, and what God has said we are to be about. So in order to have a healthy self-esteem, we must grow in a proper God-esteem. And we're going to see that today as we unpack Psalm 139. A second question that I would ask you today, this is not in your notes, it's very poignant. It's right at your heart this morning. Are you creating for yourself an identity? Or are you discovering the identity that God has for you in Jesus Christ? Are you seeking to create for yourself a personal identity? Or are you discovering the identity God has for you in Jesus Christ? That's our task this morning as we look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is one of the most personal, one of the most intimate writings in the Scripture about God's care, concern, thoughts, activity, and creation of us as His human beings. And so as we read this psalm today, I want you to put yourself in this psalmist's shoes. I want you to link your heart with his. And I want, as these words are being read and these words are being spoken, would you even internalize these and allow these words to even be your words before our Heavenly Father this morning? We're going to start with verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 18. The psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This morning, I don't know every single person who is in this room. I don't know what's at your heart level. I don't know all of your personal struggles. I don't know the depression that you go through. I don't know your questions, your doubts. I don't know your past. I don't know about your worries for the future. But here's what I know, because we're all human beings, and I know my own heart. I know that you wonder who you really are sometimes. I know that somewhere deep inside of you, you struggle because the world says a man should look like this, or a woman should be designed like this, and you look in the mirror and you say, I, I don't. And then you have these feelings that are tugging inside of you. Some of them are unholy sexual feelings. Some of them are even some confused thoughts about who you are, what your desires are, what your longings are. And you're wondering what to do with them. And the world is basically telling you, if you feel it, it can't be wrong. It's who you are. Express yourself. Don't hold back. But what I want to tell you lovingly and compassionately from the scriptures today is that there is, a, there is an identity that you have that many of you in this room don't even know about. And there is a value and a worth and esteem that you have, not because of anything that comes from you, but because of everything that comes from God towards you. And this morning, I want you to find your identity in Him. Find your identity in Him and allow that identity to color and to give information and understanding about everything that the world or inside of you is coming up with. That's the goal today. Okay? You with me? You ready to discover that? Well, if that's the goal, then we have four truths from this psalm to help us get there. And the first one is this. Here's a wonderful truth for you to know today and to ponder about today and find such welcome relief in today. Number one, God knows you intimately. God knows you intimately. In verses 1 through 6, the psalmist David unpacks all the specific, very unique and particular ways that our God knows us. Today, <clears throat> at the very human heart level, you long to be with other people. Do you know that every single one of us struggles with loneliness in varying degrees? It doesn't matter if you're single or if you're married. 
A lot of times, single people think, well, if I could just get married, I wouldn't be lonely anymore. Some of the loneliest people I know are married people. And they're very happily married. But they still struggle with loneliness. Loneliness is not a marital status issue. Loneliness is a human issue. And the reason it's a human issue is because our God has designed us and He has created us to be known and to know. Because we are very relationship-driven beings. And the reason that we're relationship being beings is because our God is very relationship-oriented. Even our God operates in the context of the Trinity, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are interacting with one another in perfect harmony and unity. And so the reason we love to relate to people and we long to relate to people is because our God also relates among the Godhead and He relates to us. Now, as a result of that, we long to be known. And we long to know. And at our very core level, we want so badly for people to know us like no other person knows us. Now the problem with this is because we are sinful and because we are broken and these very good desires can be very easily misconstrued, we are now longing for another human being to know us in a way that only God can know us. But what we do is we spend our entire lives longing for this sense of relationship completion, this relational completion that only God can 100% satisfy. This doesn't take away the desire for humans. It doesn't take away the need for, to relate to other human beings. It's to show us that no other human being is going to perfectly satisfy us the way that only God can. This is why when we only chase after relationships and we only chase after spouses or significant others or best friends, and we leave God out of the equation, if we're truly honest with ourselves, there is still a longing deep inside of us that goes untapped and unsatisfied, even in the context of very good, healthy, thriving friendships and family. Do you feel it? Are you there? God knows you more intimately than anybody else will ever know you. If you go down through this, this, uh, these first six verses, just look at a few of them. Number one, He knows your actions. Look at verse, verses 1 and 2. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Verse 3 says, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. God intimately knows your actions. He knows the actions that no one else sees. He knows what you do when no one else is looking. He knows your actions. Number two, He knows your thoughts. Verse 2 says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Now, for some of us, this should be a very scary proposition. I mean, one of the things that, one of the benefits that we have as human beings is that everything going on inside of here and in here, unless we make them audible, no one else knows about it. And so we have this whole battle and war and this whole uh, opinionated uh, talk show going on inside of our minds and our hearts constantly. And one of the beautiful things about it is no one else even has to tune in to listen. Because it's in the safety net of our minds and our hearts. Except for one thing. David says, 
that God has the remote control and He's tuned in constantly. He knows my thoughts. He knows my thoughts from afar. He knows what I'm thinking when no one else knows what I'm thinking. Number three, He knows your whereabouts. He knows your whereabouts. You search out my path and my lying down, verse 3 says. We have GPS on all of our phones, right? If you have a smartphone, you have a GPS. It's a beautiful thing because if you ever get lost, someone can come find you. It's a great thing. But you can hide from people, but you cannot hide from God. You can go close yourself off from the rest of the world, but you cannot close yourself off from God. He knows where you are at all times. We're going to talk about this a little more in point two. But he knows your actions. He knows your thoughts. He knows your whereabouts. Number four, he knows your words. And another scary proposition, the scripture actually tells us here in verse four that even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. That baffles my mind. So, Lord, you know what I'm about to say right now before I say it. Before I even think it, he knows what's coming. Does any other human being on earth know you in this way? If no one else knows you this intimately, why is it that we pursue all of our time, our energy, and, our, and that the very core of our identity in chasing after the knowledge of other people and completely leave God out of the equation when they will never know you as intimately and in depth as your heavenly Father knows you? And again... It's not to discount the need for people in our lives because he's wired us with that need. It's just we will never be relationally satisfied with the knowledge of someone else if we're not basking in the knowledge of God toward us as well. He knows your actions. He knows your thoughts. He knows your whereabouts. He knows your words. Lastly, he knows your need. I love this little subtlety in this passage. In verse 5, it says, You hem me in behind and before, which basically literally means that God surrounds us. And there are over 7 billion people on planet Earth. He is surrounding every one of us. Try to explain that and you'll drive yourself mad. But deny it and you'll drive yourself into a godless eternity. He literally surrounds us. But then look at what he says in verse 5. You lay me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. In the Hebrew original, it has the connotation of a gentle touch. There are just some moments in our lives when we don't need anybody to say anything to us. All we need is for their hand just to be on our shoulder. And that gentle touch says more than any words could have ever said. You with me? And what the psalmist says is that God knows us so intimately well. He even knows the very depth of our need. And he literally lays his hand upon us just to remind us that we're not alone and that he's there. This morning, take comfort and solace in the fact as you're trying to find your identity that no one knows you like your God. 
Louis Giglio is a, a very prominent Christian author, speaker, um, one of the founders of the Passion Worship mo- Movement. And Giglio wrote a great book about 12 years ago or so called I Am Not, But I Know I Am. And it's a play on words on the title for God from Exodus chapter 3 when God reveals himself as I am. He says, I know that I'm not, but I know God is basically what he's saying. I know the ultimate I am. And he puts it like this. He says, you are small, but you can be on a first name basis with I am. You're beyond tiny, but every ounce of you has been bought and redeemed by God's son. As a matter of fact, you are a galactic nobody. In fact, 99.999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
Verse 10 says, even there your hand shall lead me. The picture is not that God is just tailing behind me and just waiting for the moment when I'm going to screw up and need some big time help and the divine ambulance come to my rescue. He's there just enough in earshot and arm shot to get close enough to me whenever I'm... No, 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 no. The picture is there. He's there before me. He's leading me. He's going before me. You know, one of the uh, codes, gentlemen, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the gentleman code, the right thing to do for your lady when you are out with her is if you are going downstairs, you are supposed to walk down the stairs in front of them. And the reason is because if there's any danger that is coming up the stairs, you are supposed to be there to head it off so that it gets to you first and not her. That's a little bit of the picture of our father and his care and his compassion and his protection of us. He is there to lead us, to lead us, not just to be behind us, to jump in when help is needed. Number two, he is there to hold you. He says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now, this is the, uh, the omnipotence and all-powerful nature of our God. That he can both lead us and hold us at the same time. Wrap your mind around that truth today. He's there to hold us. If I could just be honest with you, some of you have heard me share this before. There are times in the intimacy of my prayer life when I am despondent and joyless and just need a special touch from the Lord. And I'm just sitting in my prayer room, which could be my office, my bedroom, or my living room. I don't know. But I'm sitting in my prayer room. And I'm just sitting like this. And I'm just professing to my God and my Father, Father, I just need to know that you are holding me right now. I need my Father to hold me. And to whisper in my ear that I am yours and you are mine. Our God goes with us constantly to lead us, to hold us. Thirdly, he is there to watch you. I love verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. In other words, if I can just go to where it's dark. Because dark places people can't see. And so I can just get to a dark room, a dark forest, a dark car, wherever. I can just hide from the world. But he says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So regardless of where you are, regardless of where you are figuratively, regardless of where you are spiritually, regardless of where you are literally, you cannot escape the gaze of your Father God. He's always watching you. He always has His eye upon you. God goes with you constantly. He knows you intimately. Number three, God creates you intricately. God creates you intricately. Verses 13 through 16 really found, uh, form one of the foundational passages for us as Christians and the value of life. In the world, we debate things like abortion. We debate things like physician-assisted suicide. We debate things 
like gender identity. And the world looks at Christians and simply thinks, accuses Christians of being people who are just against progress and who are against uh, the progression of human society. But Christians don't make these things up. You look at verses 13 through 16, it's where we understand the value of human life. All human life. Human life that is in great physical shape. Human life that is at the end of its life stage. Human life that is suffering. Human life that is flourishing. If life exists, life is valuable to our God. Because our God is who is giving that person life. And you see this in verses 13 through 16. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The psalmist is writing about the miracle of the human body. The psalmist is writing with painstaking clarity how uh, at the very minutest detail of human existence, our God is a part of it. Consider the miracle of the human body. Your heart beats 100,000 times a day. About 35 million times a year. And if you live an average life expectancy of 75 to 80 years, in your lifetime, your heart will beat somewhere between 2 and 3 billion times. Consider the fact that inside your body right now, you have blood vessels. And your blood vessels are so fine and they're twisted together to form the human anatomy. Do you know that if they were stretched out and just tied all together, that you would have 60,000 miles of blood vessels, enough to circumnavigate the globe two and a half times? Did you know that your human bones, that the human bone is as strong as stone granite? And that a stone granite brick, only the size of a matchbox, can withstand and hold nine tons of weight. Did you know that the human being, this was especially enlightening for me. Did you know that human beings are the best long distance runners on planet earth? Even surpassing the cheetah and the leopard, and any other animal that we think could run faster than us, well, guess what? We win the endurance tests. The human body is far more resilient than we ever think it could be. And that is the ingenuity and creative design of your father. And so the next time you look at the mirror and you don't like what you see, bask in the reality of what your Lord and maker has created. It is a phenomenal feat. In this passage, in verses 13 through 16, we see that the the God, creator God, is Lord over our entire being. Number one, he is Lord over your body. 
He is Lord over your body. The the psalmist says here that the, the science that we have that talks about, well, there is conception, and then that, that conception turns into a zygote, a zygote and an embryo, and then it goes through the whole human pregnancy and during the entire prenatal care. Sometimes what we think is that God just goes out and plants like baby seeds. He just goes and plants the seeds And then they just kind of grow as they will and they just kind of do what they're doing. But what the psalmist says is that whenever you were in your mother's womb, Lauren, that baby that's in your womb right now that we hope is going to be birthed sometime in the coming days, right? That right now, what God has been doing in, in Lauren's belly over the last few weeks and last few months is God is taking his chisel and he's taking his paintbrushes. And what he is doing is he is carving out nose and he's carving out ears and he's stretching muscles and blood vessels that's going to set the DNA so that we see if baby Loie is going to be five foot two or six foot four. We don't know. But God is fashioning all of that right now. So the next time you look in the mirror and you see, your funny looking nose? Or you pine away because you're shorter than the average guy? Or you're disappointed because your figure doesn't look like all the pictures in the magazine? Remember the fact that when God was working on you in your mother's womb, that God does not create accidents. And you're not an accident. And what God has done is He is forming a plethora and an, of an art gallery for the world to look at and see, look at my creativity, look at my diversity. I don't just make everybody look like Tom Brady and Giselle. And won't it be interesting that when we get to heaven and we see God face to face, That we discover that what we always thought beauty was, perhaps we had the wrong definition. Because we start learning what beauty truly is, as God meant for it to be. And we see ourselves in light of His creativity and His design. Instead of what human beings says is right. And what human beings say is good. And what human beings say is hot. God has different definitions. You ultimately exist to give glory to your maker. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and I went to the National Gallery of Art. And I saw some fantastic paintings. You know, those paintings actually glorify their maker. The artist who painted those, I saw a couple of Van Gogh's. And those paintings actually glorify Van Gogh because it points back to the ingenuity and creative mind and artistic hand of Van Gogh. You're a walking masterpiece today. You're a walking masterpiece in the gallery of earth. And every time someone looks at you, every time you look at yourself, you should say, I glorify and I'm pointing back to the artistic genius of my maker and creator, God. God creates you intricately. He is Lord over your body. Number two, very quickly, He's Lord over your life. Verse 16 is huge. 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Let me translate this for 21st century. God knew your death date long before he knew your birth date. God knew your death date before your birth date ever happened. And so when a loved one is lost, a loved one dies, we weep over that, we grieve over loss, but we shouldn't pretend as some Christians will try to comfort and say, well, the Lord just said it was His time. The Lord just decided to take Him today. No, the Lord decided when to take Him before He was ever born. And we trust that. We trust that sovereign design That death is by God's design. It's not arbitrary. It's not as God just woke up today and said, well, I think I take him today. That's a very small view of our God. He is Lord over your body. He is Lord over your life. Lastly, he is Lord over your very identity. One of the very big subtleties in this passage that I just cannot overlook is when I'm looking at verse 15. So when you look at this paragraph, it's very clear that God's talking about the the birth process, right? And being formed in my mother's womb. So he's talking about my body. But what I want you to see is that we are more than our bodies. I love verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. My identity. My very person, my very DNA, my body is just simply the tent, the housing that houses who I truly am. And what we see is the Lord is not only Lord over our bodies, He's not only Lord over all of our days and our lives, but He's Lord over my very identity. God creates you intricately. So here's what we've seen so far uh, as we start narrowing down and landing the airplane this morning. If we're going to find our identity in Jesus and God, if we're going to have a healthy self-esteem that is built upon a proper God esteem, the four truths to help us get there, we have to understand that God knows us intimately and He goes with us constantly And he creates us intricately. Lastly, look at verse 17. God thinks about you immeasurably. God thinks about you immeasurably. Verse 17, look at this response. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Perhaps you're in this room today and you're thinking, nobody ever thinks about me. Nobody is thinking about me now. The scriptures are reminding you today that God is not only thinking about you, but he is thinking about you immeasurably more than any other human being on earth ever could think about you. His thoughts towards you are vast. How vast are the sum of them, the psalmist says. This is such consolation for us as his human creation this morning. We are a church that is very young. And so since we have so many college students a part of our body, and and as a result of that, they, they then get married many times. We've had several weddings this summer. Then after weddings happen, inevitably, people get pregnant. 
and we have babies. And so we've had a lot of babies over the last few years, and we love babies. They make us smile. Uh, They're a joy. They're a treasure, the Bible even says. And we just celebrated the birth of baby Penniman this week. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate the birth of baby Loey. Now, I have to tell you, throughout my entire life, I have been told, and we say things like this all the time, that the birth of a child is just a miracle. And it is. It is a miracle. But then people will say things like, it is so beautiful to see a baby born. And the people who say that have surely never been inside of a delivery room. Now, I have to tell you this morning, I have never been to a delivery room. I have never been inside of a delivery room. However, I have watched enough National Geographic and I have watched enough Discovery Channel and I have taken one too many anatomy and human physiology courses to make me understand that from my squeamish stomach, I have no desire to go to a delivery room. Because I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, as miraculous as the birthing process may be, there is absolutely nothing beautiful about it. As a matter of fact, when a human child is birthed, it looks as if we have actually given birth to something other than a human being. They are blue. They are purple. They have squinted eyes. They are screaming with this really weird cackle. And they look like they have been dipped in a mixture of motor oil petroleum jelly and just took everything from the refrigerator and mixed it together and we've dipped it in it. Now all the pictures that we see of a baby being born is of a baby in a movie where the baby is born and all of a sudden it's wrapped in a towel or a blanket and given to the mother and it's like clean, he's dry. And I'm thinking, that's not what happens. We just think that babies come out looking like the baby dolls from Toys R Us. Here's the deal for me. I love babies. Do not get me wrong. I love babies. I love holding babies. Babies just have a smell, right? And we just love to bury our noses into that baby. But let me tell you something. If you want me to bury my nose in that bundle of joy, you better hose him down. And you better towel him off. And you better put some Johnson & Johnson in several places. And then I will just nestle my nose in that little bundle of joy. But not until then. There's nothing beautiful about the birthing process. Unless you're the mother. Moms in the room, you know what I'm talking about. Even as gross as that baby is. Even as slimy as she is, only a mother can say, give me my baby now. I want to hold her. I want to hold him. There's nothing nasty about that. That's my baby. That's my child. That's who's been growing in my womb for the last nine months. Dad, on the other hand, (laughs) Well, we'll let dad speak for himself. Here's what I want you to know this morning. As we're walking through this planet, 
the world has defined what beautiful is. The world has defined for you what identity is. The world says who is prized and treasured and who is not. We see the pictures in our magazines and on the internet. We see the pictures in Hollywood. We see the physiques. We see the expensive clothes. We see the expensive hair designs. And we see the makeup. And all the things that we have said is beautiful. And then what we say is we're not that. And so we're nasty. We're like the baby that's come out with fluid and everything else all over And the world may look at you and say, there's nothing desirable about you. You're not one of us pretty people or you're not one of us popular people. But here's the deal. Your heavenly parent is looking at you today. And he is looking at you and saying, give me my child. Let me hold my baby. Those ears that you don't like, I gave those to you. Because I thought it might bring a smile to your face and show some creativity on my part. Those aspects of your life that you don't like very much, I actually love them. Because it's actually the part about you that makes you, you. See, in the baby delivery room, we've got all these false pictures of Hollywood and the clean baby dolls that tells us what a baby birthing process is going to be. But then there's reality, right? Well, then flip that in the world. The world has all the pictures and all the ideologies of what good, right, hot, and beautiful are. And God says, nope, you got it all wrong. As the mama would say, that's my baby. This morning, what our challenge is, our challenge is to allow our self-esteem and our personal identities to, mat, to marry with what God says is true about us and how God looks at us. And then what we do is we take all of these struggles that we deal with and all of the lies of culture and we filter them through the lenses of truth. And we filter them through the sieve of God. That's how we have a self, healthy self-esteem. That's how we have a proper God esteem. And it's how we start discovering the identity that Jesus gives us. So as we conclude this morning, let's, let, let, let's ask the question, so what now? So Chris, what do we do with this? Let me show you three responses that the psalmist does here and see if there's some application to your life and heart today. First, respond with humility. Respond with humility. In response to the intimate way in which God knows him, David responds in verse 6 with this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And so in humility today, perhaps what you need to do is just simply sit there and respond before God. God, I am in awe of how much you know me. In humility, I just respond and say, wow, I haven't thought about that in a while. Secondly, respond with worship. Verse 14, after recounting all the intricate ways by which God created him, David responds in verse 14, I praise you. 
For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. When I wake up in the morning, many mornings when I wake up, I I will begin my prayer time by saying, Father, thank you for the gift of another day. This morning, my heart is continuing to beat. My lungs have breath in them. Um, Last night, I was able to run five miles or six miles or whatever happened. I have vitality. I have energy. My bodily uh, functions are working. Father, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made the christian would do themselves well to just simply worship god in response of that on a consistent continual basis thirdly respond with reflection respond with reflection this morning i want to fast forward down to verses 23 and 24 here's how the psalmist finishes search me o god and know my heart Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Everybody look at me for a moment. There are too many of us in this room have grievous ways in our hearts. And here's what I mean by this. You are more apt to believe the lies of this world than the truth of God. You are more inclined to believe what the world says about you, your heart, your looks, your aspirations. You are more apt to believe that than to believe what God says about you. You're even more apt to believe the lies of your own heart. You see, our hearts are sinful, and our hearts can lie to us. Jeremiah 17 actually says the heart is evil. Who can trust it? We can't always trust our feelings. So this morning, perhaps what you could do is to simply pray in response this morning and say, Father, search me and know me. See if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting that I would believe what you say about me and who you've made to me to be and not what the world says I should be or who I am. I want to finish this morning by reading three simple scriptures. Because the reality is, every one of us is broken. Our bodies, our minds, our spirits... They've been broken by sin. But our lives are valuable because our Father gives us life. But here's the hope of the gospel. God hasn't left us in our brokenness. If we really want to discover the identity God has for us, we have to find that identity in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has come to take this old being and make us new creations. And we will know that new creation in part here on earth but then we will know it in complete fulfillment one day when we stand before God face to face. Listen to these scriptures of what the scriptures tell us about what Jesus has come to do in us. In Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul writes, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
In Colossians 3, verses 3 through 4, that same Apostle Paul says, For you have died to your old life, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him. And then in 1 John 3, 2, he writes this promise. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Father, I pray today that your word of truth would simply wash over your people as grace like rain. I pray this morning that we would be a people who find all of our identity, our esteem, and our value, worth, and dignity in you. Because you've created us. You know us like no one else knows us. You are with us more than anyone else could ever be with us. You created us so intricately and powerfully. And you think about us immeasurably. So this morning, Father, I pray that you would align our thoughts and align our hearts with what you say. And I pray that we would kill the lies of the world, that we would even suppress and overcome the lies of our hearts with your truth. And I pray that every single one of us would walk out of this room, not only with our heads held high, but our hearts just comforted and encouraged because we've been reminded of what you think about us. Father, may that, may that truth empower and form our identity and who we are. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your pursuit of us. And we pray all these things because of Jesus. Amen.